Welcome to Season 4 of The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we discuss business agility through customer experience, employee experience, and digital transformation. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. The Agile World Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed on this show, you can go to my website at gregkilstrom.com and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile Brand Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the use of automation and machine learning in the workforce and how it can be used as a force multiplier for organizations to be more agile and increase the quality of their work. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Aaron Quicken, founder and CEO of Profit. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this with you. Um, before we get into the, the subject matter, why don't you uh, start by giving a little background on yourself and what you're currently doing at Profit? Sure. So uh, I don't want to bore your listeners in the first 10 seconds, but um, I'll, I'll, try not, I'll, tr- I'll try to do my best here. <laughs> so uh, my background's in corporate communications and public relations for more than 30 years, primarily in issues in crisis management, but also in ESG and more recently in MarTech, so marketing and technology, which I'm sure all of your listeners are quite familiar with. And uh, I've worked for a variety of uh, agencies, uh, so PR firms, as well as in-house. Um, I started my own firm about 16 years ago. I'm chair of that firm. And about three years ago, I started a company called Profit, which is PRProfit.ai. Lucky for the island of Anguilla, uh, because they get a lot of AI domain name registrations these days. Um, And uh, the purpose behind Profit is to predict media interest and sentiment before you actually pitch or reporter. And for uh, those of your listeners unfamiliar with the interesting dark arts world of public relations, so much of what you see and hear that's not breaking news is actually pitched, you know, through all sorts of, you know, artistic uh, mechanics of persuasion to reporters by PR people on behalf of brands or organizations or nonprofits or agencies working as surrogates for these brands. And, uh, you know, a lot of our business is uh, very art based. It's very narrative based. Uh, we also spend a lot of time let me correct that, um, waste a lot of time researching the right reporter to pitch. And the hit rate is usually less than two or 3%. You're probably better off with a direct mail campaign, you know, honestly. So, but of course the impact when you get a reporter to write a story about your brand, your product, your service, whatever, is tremendous because it's not paid, right? It's not advertising. So the credibility factor is very high, but the performance uh, here to date and the hit rate on behalf of PR people tends to be quite low because until now, we haven't had the technologies to identify the right reporter to pitch who's going to be interested in your story. And that's the idea behind profit at, at like a 40,000 foot level. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And so let's um, let's dive a little deeper in that. And so you already, you touched on some of the challenges. So, you know, just the, the hit rate and, and things like that. But, you know, what what other challenges did you see in the industry that really you know, that made you feel like starting profit was a good idea? And, and how have you managed to use technology to overcome them? So in addition to improving the hit rate and replacing gut and instinct with data and analytics, the other challenges, uh, the two big ones are one, most brands, most human beings, we see this on social all the time, think they're way more interesting than they really are. So the scenario is this, uh, your boss, if you're working at a brand team, could be the CMO, could be the CEO, could be a business leader, says, hey, I have this story idea. I think the Wall Street Journal is going to be really interested. 
or consumer wise, it used to be when, when, when Oprah had her show, Oprah, right? That, right, and, right. And, and a lot of people have outsized expectations about how interesting they are. And our job as PR people is to make them interesting, to make it stick, to make it resonant. And the only defense and the only arguments we could have is based on, again, our gut and our instinct and our experience and sometimes our charm. Unlike our marketing siblings, we had no data to suggest, hey, this story might not stick, but what if we altered it a little bit this way? Because I ran some algorithms and I actually think these four reporters would be more interested in Fast Company and Business Insider or whatever. So managing executive expectations about what success could or couldn't be is a huge challenge. The other challenge, which Profit is not solving for, but many, many other companies are, is KPIs. How do you know that when you land a story that it's actually impacting the business? And in the PR world, it's still a little squishy. It's like, yeah, you know, we know. Um, it could be, you know, you, you really can't map PR to sell-through necessarily until now. And we use things like ad equivalency. So there are a lot of very smart companies like Peak Metrics and Memo and others who are trying to solve for the KPI issue. I'm trying to solve for upstream, not downstream. Even before you pitch, how do you optimize that pitch? How do I save hours from that PR person having to do the research and, and, and look up these reporters? Because the old way of doing it is either looking up and reading uh, stories or you're downloading blindly lists and lists and lists of names of reporters that might not even be at that publication anymore. And the fact is, most reporters, uh, many of them are now becoming freelancers. They work for multiple publications. It's incredibly complicated. Newsrooms are shrinking. So the environment is hyper-competitive. And like this incredible podcast, there are alternative forms of media out there, yeah. podcasts, substacks, newsletters, other ways to get your story out. So why not use technology? And what we basically do is we take your pitch and we use different uh, machine learning and NLP techniques to match the content of your pitch against what reporters have written about or adjacent topics in the last six months. And then we predict whether or not a certain reporter and we surface the reporters that might be most interested in your pitch. And that has never been done before. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, it sounds like it saves... Not only does it save the PR practitioner a lot of time, but I would imagine, to your earlier point, those, those difficult conversations where you have to break it to a client that their story may not be, you know, front page New York Times material, but it's very, it will be very compelling with, you know, these 20 blogs or podcasts or, or whatever. I mean, d does it help? How, I guess, how does the data help you make that, make that pitch to, to a client? Well, the data will actually assign a percent chance based on the language that you're uploading into the dashboard. And, you know, the beauty of this system is it really forces you to be more strategic. Um, as you change the words, the data, and or put in, you know, either notable or unnotable names and quotes, the algorithms will actually then predetermine your success of getting it land, having it, that pitch land anywhere, and then also show you who's going to be most interested. I think the other the flip side of this, and this is actually how it actually started. My original idea, because I come at a crisis and issues management, was around what we call in the in the trade standby statements, right? So when you see companies who are managing a very difficult issue, could be a product recall, it could be unplanned executive succession, it could be government enforcement action. Sometimes they'll say no comment, which is bad because that's just a comment for someone else. Oftentimes they'll have what we call standby or a holding statement. That lawsuit is a baseless without merit and we will defend ourselves vigorously. You've seen it all, right? Yeah, You've seen yeah. everything. And, and some of the biggest arguments also happen between PR people and in-house lawyers or external counsel that brands hire, especially in times of crisis. 
Now, the legal team is looking at this through the lens of how do I create a bright line around uh, risk and how am I going to win in litigation? The PR team is saying, okay, but we also need to protect and grow the business and, of course, not do anything or say anything that would jeopardize the legal case. And arguments are, are heated because then the PR person has to say to the lawyer, well, is that legal advice or you're just trying to like edit? And the lawyer is like, no, I'm just editing. Like, well, okay, well, just stick to your legal advice, stick to your lane. But the, again, the same argument is based on gut and instinct. And what if you can go to a lawyer and say, I ran th- three different types of standby statements. One is like extreme apology. The other is like a half apology. One's a pivot. Well, you know, whatever it is, right? And this is the one that actually shows the least amount of media interest. So sometimes our job is to also protect the client and talk about and, and show a strategy or a statement that has the least amount of media interest because we don't want to be in the press for a particular topic or an issue. Mm-hmm. So the reverse is true as well. And that was the actually origin story behind the idea behind profit. It was really to test crisis statements for media. Interesting. Oh, yeah. That's interesting how it, yeah, how it ended up having both of those, uh, both of those use cases. Yeah. Do you see this as, you know, just the beginning of using technology for PR? I mean, this is definitely, you know, having been, I haven't been a PR practitioner, but I've, I've dealt in and around the space quite most of my career. So, you know, seeing this usage of, of technology is really exciting. I mean, do you see this as kind of the tip of the iceberg and, you know, what comes next, I guess, from, from this kind of relationship between, you know, tech and, and PR? I love the question. I think everybody says this about their respective industries. I'm sure you've heard this before, where I'm thinking, wow, you know, this industry is so slow to adopt. They're a bunch of Luddites and they're scared that this is going to take their jobs or hold them to a higher standard. And all the above is kind of true for almost every industry. What's unique about PR, and this is the tip of the iceberg, by the way, What's unique about our industry, it, it is like 90% art-based, right? We're trained to find fault. We are experts in narrative. A lot of the pitching is human-to-human, but it's becoming more email-based, right? When I got into this business 30 years ago, I was on the phone all day, all day. I was taking reporters out to lunch. It was very relationship-based. Our industry is becoming more commoditized. Relationships don't matter as much because of the mobility of the reporter, like I talked about before, except for in a couple of strong verticals like beauty and fashion, those relationships continue to matter. But everywhere else, they're they're quite disposable and very transient, right? So I'm trying to convince an industry that is really art-based that they need science to support that art. And what they really do, what they really need is science and or technology to make their decisions and their pitches smarter and stickier. Now, what I think is next, which I'm really excited about, but I, I, I don't see it next as in like next week, I see it in the next maybe couple of years, is this notion of predictive text and, you know, GPT-3, Google Console. I'm sure you've talked about this on your show before. And if you have, I apologize. I didn't listen to it and I can't reference it. But (laughs) no worries. worries. What what a lot of these PR people are saying, like, hey, Aaron, that's cool. But like, Mike, can you make my pitch better? Because sometimes we're doing demos, right? And these prospects are like, didn't work. And I look at their pitch. I'm like, yeah, it's a shitty pitch. And you have to make this like PG-13 or rated. I know, I know. <laughs> Sorry. But listen, it's the same idea, right? Shitty data in, shitty data out. If you have a crappy pitch, yeah. you're not going to have a great result. My technology cannot help you. But they're like, but actually, can it? Can you rewrite this? Can you make it better based on your intelligence that you have from your data set? And my answer is no, because uh, predictive text isn't hasn't mastered long-form narrative yet. They're really good 
And you see newsrooms, you know, using it for like box scores and earnings digest, but you still need a human, yeah. right, to edit it. Yeah. And um, I actually, I, I might cry the day that comes because I love the art of what I do. I'm just trying to make it more performative with some data and some science. That's all. I don't want to take that art away, but that's what people are asking for. And that is a little scary and maybe, maybe is beyond the pale. Maybe that crosses the line. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think what you're touching on and, uh, you know, even to, to expand this beyond the PR world, I mean, you're, you're touching on something that's happening across a lot of industries. And I wanted to, to kind of broaden this out now as well of just talking about more general automation in the, in the workforce. But I think there are, I would say any professional services, uh, organization or, you know, any, any industry that uses a lot of professional services organizations could probably say some similar things where there's, you know, their, their pay, their people are the value of the company. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to disagree with that, except to say that increased automation is not only here, but it's here to stay and, and it's only going to grow. And I think it's, I'm an, I'm a, an optimist when it comes to the relationship between humans and technology. So I think there's a place for, for everything, but Besides just losing some billable hours of, of individuals, you know, why, why do you think that companies are, are hesitant to adopt more automation or even just start exploring it? Well, what, what I've experienced so far, and, you know, we've been selling this product for about a year and one quarter right now. Yeah. Uh, it took us about a year and a quarter or so to get to the MVP. And now we're in like full on sales mode. We're doing enhancements every two weeks and you know, we globalize the data, we've added contact information. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting and very dynamic. The brands love it. So companies really, really like this because not only are they realizing that they can actually potentially pay their agencies less to do more, or they pay them the same and they're going to still do more, but they're going to be freed up to do higher value tasks. The issue is that most brands outsource what we call earned media, media relations, pitching reporters. And then it's up to the agency. And then depending on the agency team and the agency vibe and culture and whether or not they operate in 2022 or they operate in 1990, right. um, you know, they are going to have a couple of different reactions. Uh, one could be fear because, they, because they're like, wow, we might be held to an unrealistic standard. The other reaction is because we say tech, because we say AI, and by the way, when I say AI, AI I actually mean augmented intelligence. Yeah. I don't think this is artificial intelligence. They are expecting perfection. So I'll have, you know, in a demo, I'll have like a PR manager on the other side be like, well, you know, Gretchen Morgenstern, she would never cover this. We would never pitch her. They don't talk like that. I'm just making fun. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, of course not. But your human brain would come to that assessment too. But look at the other 20 potential recommendations, 15 of which might not have ever hit your radar because you're using a very analog old spray and pray system. And I, it's so part of this is changing habits, behavior change, and letting them know that this makes them better. This actually makes them more performative. And there will be a certain point where you're going to see a split in the PR world where you've got just like publicists and people who are like old school relationship people, and then people who are going to get the same, if not better, results using technology in a hybridized fashion in the same way that work is now hybridized, that workflow for PR people will become hybridized where so much of it will be automated to free you up to do higher value tasks. And I'm sure you could probably say that's happening in a lot of different industries and verticals and PR is not unique, but PR people for some reason have this allergy to math 
and they equate into false equivalents data with math. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing the math. And by the way, this is not math. This is just data. This is insight. And it's to make you more performative. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I like the way of thinking of it as, as augmented intelligence, because that's, I mean, I think there's, until we hit some, some threshold that I think we're, we're quite far away from, it's always going to not only require, but humans to, to interact with the, the data, but also it's going to make it better. Machines can make humans better, but humans can also make machines better, right? So I think it's that it's that dynamic of the back and forth, and really, you know, do we really want to be spending our time on certain tasks that are repetitive, are fraught with whether it's human error or just wasted time, you know, just waste in general, or would we rather focus on you know crafting a better story in the first place or, or things like that, right? Well, and, and what if I told you, and this is something that I'm trying to deal with right now, it's a cultural issue, you know, for agencies, especially big agencies, you know, maybe half of their revenue comes from the drudgery. Uh, now, their employees might not like that. Management loves it. You know, shareholders love it. But it, the, the, it comes from doing all that research, media monitoring, identifying the reporter, you know, pitching all day. And so what I'm saying, so the agency is like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Actually, you're saying that like I can do uh, this job in half the time, but I bill for my time. Uh oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're you're losing billable hours at that point, and you know, and I think that's where it comes down to: does the model for professional services billing change when machines are doing a lot of the work? And you know, is it does it become more value based, or does it? It could be either or both or, or even something else that I have yet to, to figure out. But, you know, it could be the price. It's a race to the bottom because now all of a sudden it's quick to do. And so we're only we're only compensated on time and, and the professional service services realm. It could be value based because even though it only takes a machine five minutes to do what took 50 hours of work, the PR firm is still incredibly valuable in the way they're able to interpret and, and use that. Or I don't know, maybe there, maybe there's a third a third scenario. Well, so I'm going to take your role as the the optimist. I think <laughs> that uh, for the right kind of agency, the right kind of firm, what happens is is that extra time that they're spending money on could be used to foster more creativity, more narrative development, maybe even more programs and ideas around uh, you know helping communities that are on the margin helping those that are in need. I mean, there's so many other ways to uh, reallocate that time. Um, because at the end of the day, the machine isn't putting the narrative together for you. They're just telling you where the narrative is best placed. You still need to spend time on narrative and storytelling and, and figuring out how and why you're relevant in this world. And not enough agencies spend time on that. They immediately go to, what's the pitch? What's the pitch? Well, actually, we need to test it first. We need to, This is basically almost like a pitching in the cloud. It's like a virtual pitch environment before you do it in real life. So optimistically, I think if anything, it'll, it will, and it should make our business and agencies better, stronger, um, because we're getting rid of a lot of the drudgery. It doesn't mean we're necessarily getting rid of revenue. It should just be reallocated. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think for those employees at a, you know, at a PR agency or something as well, I mean, that are worried about getting replaced by machines or whatever, like how, what, what advice would you have to them? I mean, you know, they're, they're going to be the future of this and, and, you know, working alongside the AIs of the world and, and stuff like that, you know, what, what advice would you give to somebody that's maybe a little more junior in, in their career and, and facing this idea that 
maybe they thought their career was going to go one way, you know, as far as doing all of that manual drudgery, but now there's these tools there, but the tools may threaten their existence if management doesn't embrace it in the right way. You know, what, what would your advice be to them? Well, uh, my advice to them is they should be the advocates inside of their organizations for investment in a comms tech stack. Um, and, uh, and, and cause they are the future and, and they should make the same argument that from a professional development standpoint, most of their time is better spent less on kind of menial drudgery, uh, research oriented tasks and more on, you know, narrative development, guidance, campaign, um, creative executions, experiences, things like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because I find that very, very, very senior people, interestingly, love this and love the idea. Gen Z, and I've got two kids that are Gen Z, absolutely love it. So the entry-level folks, let's say up to 25 years old, they get it because they've been, uh, they've been on Snapchat. They've been on TikTok. They, they understand the power of the creator economy, yeah. and that needs to be kind of you know their North Star. It's the middle that's the problem. Say ages, and I hate to use ages, but let's just say cohorts uh, between like 25 and like late 30s. They are, and I think that might be millennials, and I apologize if you're one of them, um, they're kind of stuck. And I think they're the ones that I'm trying to unstuck. Yeah, <laughs> see, I didn't yeah. Cur- I didn't curse there. Um, in, in, <laughs> in, this, in this kind of conversation, and that's where it's getting a little tricky and challenging. Yeah, uh, no, I, I get it. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think there's, if people are able to wrap their heads around it, I think there's plenty of opportunity. But it, yeah, it does represent a shift in, you know, in maybe how you saw your career or, you know, how you saw some of the value of your job and, you know, and, and so what I would, and I think you're saying the same thing, what I would argue the, is the more valuable part of the job is, is less on the, on the drudgery and more on, on crafting the, the story in the first place to, to your earlier point. Yes. I should bring you to my demos, my pitch sessions, because <laughs> nice. it's nice. hugely helpful. <laughs> you get it. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, one last question before we wrap up, uh, you know, just about this topic of, you know, increased automation and just the, you know, changing workplace. Do you have any recommendations of, you know, something that somebody can read, watch, listen to, you know, just anything else to, to kind of help them wrap their heads around it a little more? Well, they should absolutely listen to this podcast. That's awesome. Um, but um, that is the other issue. So in, in my business, nobody has really focused on uh, the intersection between kind of, you know, comms and technology. Uh, there are a lot of broad-based trade pubs, but no one's really focused on it. Um, I do think that compro.biz um, has a channel, a comms tech channel, which I think is really good. PR Week and Provoke um, are definitely upping their game with their dashboards, their Inno- Innovator 25. Business Insider, because they like to do league tables. It's a little light, but it's a place to start. But sadly, there's there's a little there's a bit of a, a desert or a dearth of uh, information and inspiration uh, around this topic. I do think it's going to change. Maybe you and I can do our own comms tech podcast or newsletter. I hey, yeah, it sounds idea. like there's a here. sounds like there's a gap in the market. I know. <laughs> nice. Yeah, maybe our Substack. Um, yeah, can I add just one more thing? Yeah, because I want to do. I want to give a shout out to this really cool company in London called Factmata. That's F A C T M A T I and. Companies like Factmata and Peak Metrics, who's a partner of ours, they're looking at kind of comparative analysis and they're trying to see around corners for brands based on what's trending in the market using machine learning. So, you know, they will basically look at a word like, and I hate to, to, to bring this up, but insurrection. And they'll be like, when, when was that first mentioned 
you know, online. So forget about just media, just online. And how did it travel? And then where were, where were the counter narratives? And then how do our brands and or think tanks or NGOs, how do they then participate or not participate in that conversation? So there's a whole other element of Comstack, which is around comparative narrative um, analysis and development, really literally trying to see around corners to either protect and or grow your enterprise. That, I think, is super, super cool, and we should watch that space. It's not what what I do, but I do think that it is akin to it. And it could be the the tonic against mis and disinformation as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds fascinating. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for joining. Um, For those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with you and what you're doing with Profit? Well, uh, they can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, They can go to prprofit.ai. We're also on LinkedIn. The best way to follow us is on LinkedIn. Uh, We're on Twitter, but not impactfully. Takes a lot of work, as you know, and a lot of efforts. I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. That's the best way to keep up with us. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Aaron Quitkin, founder and CEO of Profit, for joining the show. Thanks for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.theagilebrand.show. To get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, visit my website at gregkillstrom.com. Until next week, stay agile.